Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Dr. Nikki Nabazny, the principal and founder at Beleza Advisors. Nikki specializes in strategy development and execution in higher education. She's worked in higher ed as a senior innovation and strategy leader, and now she has a really impressive client list. She works with clients such as Brown, Fordham, University of Chicago, and Yale's Divinity School, along with many others. Nikki, welcome. Thanks so much for having me today, Sarah. Your specialty is strategic planning. Every college and university has a strategic plan. How many of us really use them the way they should be used or could be used? How many have a useful strategic plan to begin with? And, you know, there's that tired joke, right? The strategic plan's just a document that we put on a shelf and then later collects dust. But that's where colleges go wrong. They're spending money on a strategic plan and then not using them to their full potential. It should be a guide for success. And Nikki's here today to walk us through the key issues of strategic planning and execution and how to get the most value out of it. We spend so much money in human capital time and other direct expenses to create those plans. So now we're going to get some bang for our buck. Nikki, I want to start with your background. Before you started your own consulting business, you worked at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management as well as the University of Chicago. How did you find your way into strategic roles in higher ed? Yeah, well, I actually began my career at University of San Francisco um, on the fundraising side and there had the opportunity to connect with donors and share the institution's strategic priorities with them. And I loved that work, but it always struck me that I never really knew or understood where the strategies came from. So when I was at University of Chicago, I had the opportunity to move move into the provost office as chief of staff. And that was a wonderful learning opportunity to get closer to the core issues of the institution and to really understand some of the strategic decisions that are made and trade-offs and to get sort of the behind-the-curtain view of how strategies and priorities were set. So I've worked on any number of strategic plans over the years. Every single time we start the process, I swear it's a different process, right? A different group of people advising us, maybe external consultants, maybe internally, we have someone leading the charge. The tendency is to bring everyone together for input, spend months creating these documents. But tell us where you start in the process. When you walk in and you start working with a new client, what does it look like? Can you outline those steps for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, it's really important to understand what an institution wants to get out of their plan. There's lots of reasons that motivate institutions and leaders to take up a planning process. Sometimes it's driven by external issues like accreditation or an upcoming fundraising campaign. Sometimes it's the result of a new leader coming in and wanting to have an opportunity to be thoughtful about the priorities they'll set for the institution. And sometimes folks just think it's kind of time to do it. Maybe it's been five or 10 years since the last plan. With any of those reasons, I think the starting place is the same, which is, you know, two key inputs at the very beginning. 
One is making sure the institution is focused on the mission and vision. What are you trying to do? What does success look like? And is there a shared understanding across the institution of of that? The second is also understanding what's happening in the landscape. Um, so I often will start with a, a, a review of peer institutions, um, looking at, okay, what are other folks doing in this space? And being attentive to some of the headwinds that higher ed is facing these days, making sure that any plan that's created is responsive to the specific circumstances and challenges and opportunities that an institution's facing. So I just heard you mention two things, focusing on the mission and vision. What are you doing? And do we have a shared understanding of that? And then secondly, you talked about what's happening in the wider landscape. Have you ever worked with a client where there was no overlap between those two? Fortunately, not. I mean, in higher ed, the mission and vision um, is often very compelling and usually pretty well understood, um, which may not be the case in all sectors. Um, where I think the challenge can come in is that second piece of what's actually happening outside the walls of our campus and our institution. And, um, you know, for example, I've worked with one client where faculty were not um, fully bought into the idea of a demographic cliff and that enrollment was going to continue to decline. And so, you know, that was an important shared understanding we needed to get to of, you know, just offering the same programs in the same way was not going to yield the same number of students in the future. Denying the demographic cliff is its own unique form of denial. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of data out there around that one. Um, so that's perhaps a, a more extreme example. But but certainly there are cases where institutions have different a different sense of their own vulnerability to trends in the marketplace. That makes more sense, right? It's, it's not denying the existence of a demographic cliff. It's saying we will be immune. We're strong enough. We're good enough. People are going to come here no matter what. And we'll, we'll weather that sort of crisis. So tell me about the type of people that you like to bring to the table. So when you're working with clients and you're strategizing, who needs to be in the room to help shape and influence the ultimate strategic plan? Who do you bring in? Well, first and foremost, you know, there has to be buy-in and sponsorship from, you know, whoever the leader of the of the organization is. So whether that's the president or chancellor of an institution working with a dean or maybe it's a, you know, director of a center or a department, that individual has to own and really drive the process. And a big part of our work is in partnership with them, understanding in your particular and unique context, who are the people that need to be around the table? I think that varies from institution to institution. Um, you know, at very student-focused institutions, sometimes you want a student representative at the table. At major research institutions, it's critical to have faculty voice really strongly represented. So it does vary a little bit. I don't think there's a set formula of these are the five people who must be there, but it's critical to understand who can influence whether or not the plan is successfully implemented and who is impacted by potential changes that might come out of the plan. So I also like to start with a stakeholder map of just getting a sense of who is here on the campus that we need to be thoughtful about. And from there, go, that will lead to 
who needs to be around the table versus who needs to be kept in the loop on a regular basis versus who just needs to be informed at regular intervals as the process moves along. So I'm imagining that the stakeholder map has multiple tiers. I think you mentioned them a bit. Uh, if you could go over them for us again, that you had the, the group that you absolutely must bring in for input, those you would want to keep in the loop, some you would just inform, or can you kind of walk us through those different tiers? Yeah, so you can imagine a two by two matrix and on the X axis or horizontal axis, you have sort of influence, right? How how influential is this group of people to whether or not the plan is adopted, is endorsed, is implemented? And then on the Y axis, um, you have uh, impact from these people will not be impacted by any decision that we could make to these people will be highly impacted. It could change their day-to-day -day, you know, work or learning or researching conditions. And typically, you know, you want to be most attentive to people who are in the top right quadrant. So people who are highly influential to whether the plan is successfully adopted and often are highly impacted because it, particularly if you're talking about new strategies or a change in strategy, you know, moving in a different direction, you really need to gain the buy-in of the people who are potentially impacted by that change um, and make sure that they're part of the process. Well, that's really interesting. For as many times as I've been through strategic planning process, this is the first time I've heard about the stakeholder map. So I'm already learning. So I'm very excited. And I really like this idea that you're emphasizing that the type of institution are you a teaching institution? Are you a research institution? Are you public? Are you private? The nature of your institution will shift how you think about those stakeholders, that it's not a one model for all, but you really have to factor in those variables. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, while every institution is engaged in what we call higher ed writ large, each institution has its unique context, nuances, history, um, political landscape um, that you have to be attentive to in these planning processes. And these are often things that can derail the successful adoption and implementation of a plan. So it's really critical to work in close partnership with the clients, with the folks at the institution to understand what really matters here and what's going to be critical to this plan and being successfully adopted. And which types of forums have you found to be the most fruitful in soliciting input? So when I think of forums or platforms to solicit input, I might think of listening sessions or focus groups, might be a workshop where we hash out and brainstorm ideas. It could be surveys. What have you found to be the most useful platforms? I think the most useful is figuring out what is the right combination of platforms. And this also depends a bit on scale. So for example, I have a client that's a research center, which is relatively small. So in that instance, we're able to do one-on-one -on -one in-depth interviews with each faculty member. Um, we coupled that with surveys to get some quantitative data, but we were able to get everybody's input directly. When you're working at a much larger scale, say an institution-wide scale, it's just not possible to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with everyone. So you have to be really attentive to what are the ways in which you can capture that feedback. So typically, um, a combination of interviews and focus groups up front with sort of representative key stakeholders is really helpful to get um, a good baseline understanding of what are the strengths, what are the opportunities, what's working really well on this campus, where are people frustrated, where do they see opportunity to build on something that's really good and make it great. 
And doing those in-depth conversations up front is really helpful. And then testing with a survey that goes to a broader audience to say, okay, what is the magnitude of this sentiment? Is this something that everybody feels or is this just you know, one particular niche of folks are really attentive to this issue. Um, it's also helpful to have, you know, regular touch points throughout the process. So whether that's virtual town halls, um, setting up sort of a, an email box where anybody can send in feedback or comments throughout the process can all be helpful. Um, and I think just being very attentive to ensuring everybody gets an opportunity to participate in some way, but recognizing that particularly at an institutional level, not everybody is going to be sort of around the proverbial table to the same extent. Even if they really want to be. Yes. Which forums have you found are not as fruitful? Or maybe it's a combination. You talked about a successful combination is really effective. Are there any forums or combination of forums that just you haven't found to be very useful, that it's more effort than it's probably worth? I think it's important to understand what you're trying to get out of a particular engagement, um, because some forums will lend themselves um, better to achieving those goals. So, for example, I mentioned virtual town halls. Those are effective largely for informing people. It's a great way to give people an update of here's the work that's been done to date. Here are some initial findings. You can include question and answer time on that, but typically you don't get a lot of engagement. So that is a great tool for informing and bringing the community along. It's not a great tool or forum for getting substantive and meaningful feedback on what you've put together so far. So I think it's less that there are bad forums out there. It's more you have to be very clear on what is your goal in that session? What are you hoping to get out of it? And making sure you're choosing the forum that is best suited for that. So if substantive and meaningful feedback is what you're after, something like an interview or a focus group is probably going to be much more effective than sort of a wide open town hall. And have you found there's a type of person who does really well at facilitating some of these forums, let's say a focus group or interviews? Is there a type of person that really you want to make sure is facilitating these discussions? I think there's a lot of different people who can do this. So certainly this is a role that external consultants play quite often. Um, I've also seen it handled very effectively by institutional research teams, particularly if those teams have um, folks on them who have a qualitative research background. Uh, the luxury and benefit of being in higher ed is that you usually have really smart people around on your campus. And, um, you know, occasionally tapping into faculty members or really talented staff who have a background in qualitative research can be really helpful. I think in anything like focus groups, interviews, you really just want somebody who is a very strong listener, who does not interject their own opinion into the conversation, and who knows how to ask good follow-up questions to get to that next layer of understanding and insight beyond um, what somebody may offer as a first response. So I think those are two really good tips that I'm going to take away from what you just said. I heard you talk about if they have qualitative research in their background they're probably well-suited to lead some of these conversations for input, and as well as if they have really strong listening skills and can keep the conversation move forward, but moving forward at the pace and matching the nature of what's being said. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I'm imagining that you go through this process, Nikki, and you're collecting all these different types of data with different interviews, focus groups, you name it, survey results. I'm imagining the input's pretty vast, right? You end up after weeks and weeks of collecting all of this, maybe months, and maybe some of what you're collecting is contradictory, maybe inconsistent, uneven. What do you focus on if that's the case? Yeah, certainly the more people you ask, the more opinions you'll get. Um, so then figuring out how to sort of parse through that, particularly, as you said, when um, people are seeing the same situation or same issue from very different perspectives. Um, you know, in some cases, you know, working with clients, we have uncovered um, instances where folks just have a simple misunderstanding. They think, for example, a reporting structure works one way when it actually does not. So sometimes there's a process to educate the community throughout um, the process where we're able to say, you know, correct misperceptions or um, help further contextualize um, the reality that some people may not be aware of, particularly if they don't work very closely with a, you know, a specific administrative structure or team or whatnot. Um, you know, surveys can be really helpful in terms of gathering broader input, and that's a great place to test out some of those inconsistencies um, to get more people weighing in so you have a sense of the magnitude of sentiment on a particular issue or topic, and you can start to see, okay, this really is just 20% of respondents felt that was a problem. Um, you know, at the end of the day, this is also why going starting with a strong foundation of alignment on mission and vision is so critical, because when you do that work up front and get everybody aligned around a shared understanding of where the institution is trying to go, it makes some of the strategic decisions that come later very easy because you've already identified sort of the North Star for the institution. So now all of the input and strategies you're considering, you the question at hand is, does this advance us closer to our North Star, closer to our ultimate destination or not? So when we think about that North Star and having a shared understanding of where we want to end up, where are we going in the next few years? Sometimes you can have competing priorities to achieve those same goals. Have you ever found that happened with anyone that you've worked with where maybe, let's say, the board of regents or trustees has a different idea than the senior leadership team or a different idea of the faculty and staff? Has that ever happened? And how do you navigate through that? Yeah, I mean... I think what I see very commonly in higher ed is a desire to put everything in the plan and that the plan should reflect the vast array of work that's happening across the institution, that anybody within the institution should be able to read the strategic plan and see their work clearly reflected in it. And I try very hard to caution clients against this, largely because, you know, the, the old adage, if everything is important, nothing is important. You know, a leader, an institution cannot effectively advance eight, 10, 12 priorities at one time. And the value of a strategic plan is in narrowing down to the three or four things that are really going to move the institution forward that are not business as usual or a rehash of the same things that you've been doing for a long time, but that really is a strategic choice of a direction 
direction in which you want to move. And I think if you set that as the parameters up front, then you have to bring the regents, the trustees, the faculty, everybody to the table to say, if this is what we're aiming for, and we've all agreed on what our North Star is, our vision, how do we make do all of these things actually advance it? Are all of these things truly strategic choices and not business as usual? And if you force those conversations, it pretty quickly narrows down to a few actual priorities. I think that is such wise advice, having sat on a different seat than you sit at and seeing 28 page long strategic plans with 25 strategic initiatives. And what I'm hearing you say is actually it's much more productive and effective if you narrow to three or four that moves your organization forward. It's truly strategic and it's not business as usual. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, there's a, a test called the opposite test, which is if you're wondering if your strategy is actually a strategy, say the opposite. And if the opposite is something you would never do, then your strategy is not a strategy. So here's an example that I've seen in many institutional plans, something along the lines of deliver a transformative educational experience. So what would the opposite of that be? Deliver a completely mediocre educational experience that leaves our students unchanged? No institution would ever do that. You would never say that's our strategy. So delivering a transformational educational experience is your table stakes. That's what you do. That's why you exist. That's not a strategy per se. A strategy may be Every, stu every undergraduate student should study abroad. That's a strategy choice that then leads to a transformational educational experience. The opposite of that might be double down on our residential experience and create vibrant living learning communities. Those are different strategies. Nikki, I love this idea of the opposite test. I'm going to start using it today. I, I absolutely love that. And so many things clicked for me in my mind when you were talking about that, because you're right. We default to our table stakes rather than really stretching ourselves. And I really liked what you said about, you know, not having business as usual, but moving the needle forward. Tell me about how long does this whole strategic plan process really take in your experience? I think it depends on where the institution is at and how quickly they want to move. Um, if an institution has, you know, recently gone through a visioning project or they've already done some planning, it can move a lot faster. But one of the things I tell my clients is ideally, you know, we want to move from this idea of planning as an event to strategic thinking and monitoring as standard operating procedure. So, so often we think about this big 18 month process that culminates in the big document and then everybody breathes a sigh of relief and says, yay, we don't have to do that again for five years. What, what we're trying to do is help our clients build the institutional muscle to say, you need to be engaged in these strategic conversations and monitoring your progress on a regular basis. So that you don't have to do this huge, 
you know, big process every five years. However, every month, every quarter, you need to be checking back in, revisiting this plan and making changes to the plan as your circumstances change. You know, you set a strategy, you start down a path. Maybe there were some unforeseen challenges or it goes better than you thought. You know, the plan needs to get updated. So ideally, the plan becomes sort of this living document that you are checking in on regularly and getting out of this mindset of like, oh, every seven years, we get everybody around the table to create a new plan. So what happens for maybe some of our smaller institutions that don't have the resources to staff internal people to kind of monitor this and keep it in front of us and making it this living, breathing document? What's your best advice for those smaller schools or schools without the resources right now? Well, this is a piece of advice I would give a school of any size, which is for this to truly be successful, you need to embed it into your existing structure. Because once the consultants leave, the institution has to be able to carry this work forward in a really sustainable way. So it's really critical to build it into whatever existing committees you already have so that the work can continue on an ongoing basis. I really like that idea. I'm just imagining that there are some universities that just say, hey, something's got to go. This to us seems ancillary. We, we muddle through without having it embedded within our internal structure. What would you say to that kind of resistance? Well, I'd be curious to understand, you know, how successful was their last plan? Did they did they achieve it? And, you know, I say that a bit tongue in cheek, but so often when you look at these plans, the way the strategies are articulated, there's no measurable goals. You know, it is goals like provide a transformational educational experience. And my question to those those institutions is always, how do you know if you're doing that? You know, if you don't if you don't do the work to set, you know, the hard work and negotiation and discussion and compromise to land on a truly measurable goal and objectives, how do you know if you've done it? Um, And if you don't, sort of the old adage of what gets measured matters. And oftentimes in these plans, they're lacking measurement, they're lacking implementation milestones. And so there's no way for the institution to know if they've done it, Um, which means in five years, you could very well be sitting down to rehash the exact same conversation you're having today because nothing has actually moved forward. What's your recommended shelf life for a strategic plan? I've heard three to seven years. Where would you say the timeline should be for most universities? I'm a fan of a rolling three-year time horizon. So, you know, as I mentioned, the the tracking, the monitoring of this plan, if it gets baked into the standard operating procedures, you're updating the plan regularly so to have, you know, bigger picture strategy discussions around, okay, we've done, you know, we've achieved X, Y, and Z on our plan. Um how might, you know, where do we want to go next now that we've achieved these horizons? How do, what's the next frontier? Um, so, you know, those, those happen more infrequently, but, um, you know, the monitoring I think is, is a critical part of a successful plan. Let's segue into implementation. What do you see needs to take root in the short term and the midterm in order to achieve some of those long-term goals? Like what needs to happen pretty much as soon as you roll out that new strategic plan? Ideally, when you roll out the strategic plan, there it's accompanied by 
an implementation plan. And and this is sort of an important point. You know, we all use this phrase strategic planning. It's actually two different things. There's strategy, which is, you know, sort of the questions, you know, where do you want to compete? In what marketplace? You know, what are you trying to win is sort of the, the business um, definition of that. It applies to higher ed too. You know, what what who are your peers? What are you trying to do? What are the strategic choices you're going to make? Which is a very different conversation and process than planning, because planning is very much about what are the resources we have today? How do we want to allocate them? What additional resources will we need? And so often these processes over-index on the planning because it's easier, it's more comfortable, it's more known, whereas the strategy is really about placing some big bets and potentially taking some risks um, to ensure the long-term viability and vibrancy of the institution. So I think it's important to sort of decouple these things for folks. Um, I would say when you come out with strategies or priorities, um, pillars, institutions call them different things, you know, there needs to be an implementation plan already developed that needs to involve very much the people who are going to be responsible for that implementation. So pulling together the faculty and staff who are going to own a particular goal or priority, getting their buy-in on what the right measurements, metrics, milestones, and timelines are for them to be able to achieve it is a critical part of the process and ensuring that all of those things are articulated in a clear enough way that it's very objective whether or not you're on track or off track. And then you can adjust the plan as needed if you're off track. So a lot of clear guidance while this is rolling out. Tell us about some of the common struggles that you've seen when a university starts to take over and implement their new initiatives. Where do you see them fall into traps or slow down? I think one of the biggest challenges institutions face in pursuing, you know, new and bold priorities is that you still have to be really attentive to the day to day. You know, it's sort of the tyranny of the urgent that, um, you know, time you may have allocated on your calendar to advance a new initiative could be taken up unexpectedly by a student who's experiencing a mental health crisis, a faculty member who, um, you know, had their research agenda fall apart for some reason, um, some sort of security situation on campus. You know, there's all these things that come up that are incredibly urgent and often require the attention of leaders on campus to attend to. So the question is, how do you still carve out and protect that time to move things forward? I think that's really the one of the largest challenges and something that actually can be helped by planning because if there is a clear plan in place it's not reliant on one person to move something forward you know there's a team people are assigned responsibility and are held accountable for different for advancing different parts of the plan so then even if you know one person can't be as attentive to it as they thought they would be work is still getting moved forward by the institution. Um, I think that's a critical critical safeguard to build in is making sure the entire organization is clear on what the goals are and who owns what part of those goals so that it keeps moving forward. Um, because there's no way to get rid of the the day-to-day things that come up, that's just par for the course. Um, and so you just have to build in the safety net around that so that it still moves forward. I really like that you elicited some of those challenges that 
sound very real and very much resonate with me. Tell us about waste. Do you see any waste during the planning and implementation phases? Maybe it's waste of time. Maybe it's waste of our energy. Maybe there's some dead end ideas we should all just stop thinking about. Have you seen any waste? I wouldn't say I've seen a lot of that. You know, I think one challenge with some clients is actually encouraging people to think bigger. Um, this goes back to sort of our com- our natural comfort with planning because it's more known. It's a lot easier to think about what incremental growth would look like than to think about, for example, creating an entirely new academic program that's not offered today. Um, so I think sometimes we can waste time by being hesitant to think big from the outset. Um, you know, which is not to say that every planning process is going to result in some, you know, brand new shiny initiative that's never been contemplated before. But ideally, a strategic planning process should push the organization to really think about the boundaries of what is possible. If we were the best version of ourselves, the most effective version of our institution, what would we be able to do? And, you know, helping people be comfortable with that nervousness that can come up from goals of that size is important. Um But I think it can take a long time to get people there. So sometimes, you know, there's a lot of waste on the front end as people aren't quite comfortable taking the the leap of thought that's required to get to the really interesting and transformative strategies. I really like that phrase, push the boundaries of what's possible. I love that. So Nikki, as we're wrapping up here today, what's your best advice for college leaders to operate a viable institution? It could be related to strategy and strategic planning, but it could be related to anything in higher ed. Well, I think this is a really challenging time for higher ed, and I think it's a time of great opportunity. Um, And I think the institutions and the leaders that will fare the best will likely be those who are clear-eyed about the challenges and the opportunities and are willing to push, you know, push the boundaries a bit in terms of of what they what they imagine for their faculty, for their staff, for their students, and really sort of be willing to move the needle and and to make sure that that vision is known and shared so that the entire, you know, weight and resources of the institution can be aligned behind that. Nikki, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I learned several things, not the least of which is the stakeholder map, as well as the opposite test. I cannot wait to start using the opposite test because I think it's going to challenge my own thinking. Things that I've been sitting back on and assuming were good strategies, I think would not pass the opposite test. So thank you so much today for being here. And I'm sure some of our listeners are going to want to reach out, talk to you, learn more about your work. And so I'll include your LinkedIn and website in our show notes. Wonderful. Sarah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.